Yes, this is an important kind of topic that we can talk about, especially for those who have certain kind of backgrounds. So um, the question is about uh, the, the precepts and the statement is, is that it's hard to stay on the noble path when you're not keeping the precepts. No, no, the first precept, the precept, uh, you know, when you lie, it takes you off the path completely. It takes you off the path. The other four, they make it very hard. They make it almost impossible to walk the path. You are on the path, okay. but it's hard. Right. So now, as I, as I have uh, understood it and actually learned it in the Pali and stated in the order, the first precept is about uh, harmlessness or not taking the breath from living animals that is normally translated as killing. And that uh, certainly, uh, in order, especially if you, uh, an example of that would be to kill another person with your bare hands versus having a weapon, but just your bare hands is all you've got. And your whole intention is, is to make sure that that person is dead. You see that happen in movies quite often. Do you recognize how, especially if they're going to resist you, their whole intention is to stay alive, which means that you've got to have enough uh, force inside of you to completely overpower them and struggle with them and kill them. In order to do that, you have to be in a great deal of rage, almost to the point of being crazy. It's completely different to just pull out a gun and shoot somebody. That's kind of almost easy to do. It's an easy pull of the trigger if you've got a gun. But if you've got to go do it with your bare hands, well, that's the time of the Buddha. Is killing is a major thing. This is why it's uh, a parajika in the, in the Pali. So that's the first one. That one for sure means that one was not even on the path when you're capable of killing another human being or capable of killing like that, or even a, a big animal, uh, like killing a dog. Uh, so uh, it has to have that intention of overpowering. And so that's that. Normally it goes uh, Panati Pata Way Ramani and then Atenadana, which is taking things away from people that they're, they're not giving to you. The third one is also the one, Sura Maria Machap. No, excuse me, that's the fifth one. Kame Sumi Chachara Awe Ramani Sakabadam Samati Ami means to take advantage sexually to overpower someone or to go behind the husband's back to the wife. This is the kind of stuff, uh, sexual misconduct. It's the fourth one that has to do with right speech or not endeavoring in wrong speech. And in wrong speech, well, let's not use the word lying and let's look at the way that the poly is talking about it. Because there's actually four items in there. And that one of one of the items on the list is actually directly intentionally lying. And that's different than all lying. Now, there's a second kind of uh, wrong speech, and that is gossip. 
And the gossip would be then is to talking trash about a third person or here we have the three of us. If we started trashing some uh, well-known teacher or something saying that, oh, Mr. Whoop-de-doo meditation teacher, the grand master actually is off with Epstein, then that would be considered um, uh, malicious gossip because it has the intention of separating uh, the hearer that hears that kind of gossip from like, oh, you you should hear what I've heard about this guy over here. So repeating things that we've heard before that are harmful about another person that is not here is is a considered just as much as a direct lie. The third kind of um, speech is is also harsh speech. Now, in English language, we have an entire vocabulary of what we would call low class words that are not supposed to be said on television. And that when Western ears hear these kind of words, um, some of the people become offended by those words. But normally those words were uh, were always common in some parts of the language and not others. Now, that's not the same thing as um, the, uh, the kind of harsh language that we're talking about. The kind of harsh language that's in the suttas talks about directly accusing someone or yelling at someone in anger. In other words, you're thrusting your harshness out as opposed to a word. So in fact, we could use a low class word in a humorous way and everybody understands that the word is used in a humorous funny way and do not see it as low caste. But if I use that same word in an accusation about uh, 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 F you, then that would be considered harsh. All right, so it's not the word itself, but it's the attitude of the language that we have, which is a language of violence. This is what we mean by harsh speech. But then at the other end of the scale, the one that we're all uh, so, um, let us say, not observant about is what we would call uh, frivolous speech. Now, frivolous speech would be um, basically talking politics because that's kind of frivolous. In other words, it doesn't, um, uh, it's not conducive to one's own personal welfare right now. But not only that, but almost always talks of frivolous politics winds up being uh, malicious gossip anyway. That, oh, I want to talk up my political party, which means I talk down that political party. And so that's trashing something else. And so this would be uh, also, you can see how these three, these words get mixed together. Now, there's another kind of lie, which we can call uh, in English, in fact, is known as a white lie. But the white lie, actually, uh, most of them are dark gray. Yeah, they're, 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 not, they're not white. There's no, there's not white. Well, here's the point. And that is, is that you can be honest with somebody and have the quality of being brutally honest. And you can call that the truth. Well, it might be true, but it is not 
being said for their welfare and benefit right now, maybe for their welfare and benefit when they finally get over the fact that you've been harsh with them. But uh, that when we're harsh with people, even if we're telling them the truth, that still would be considered wrong speech. So it would be actually then the white lie would be refraining from trashing him to his face. Morato, excuse me, is the precept about speech or is it about lying? I thought it was about lying. No, actually, if you really want to know the whole of it, the Buddha never said that I only teach one thing, and that is don't lie. That's okay. not the teaching of the Buddha. Okay. Um, precept, what is it? The precept is about speech or is, or about like truth and lying. I thought, uh, I, I think. Okay. Well, where did the precepts come from? Um, uh, I, I, don't know. I don't know. The precepts as precepts showed up at least 500 years. No, maybe not 500, but 200 years after the Buddha's death. That's when the precepts showed up. Not only that, but they showed up as five precepts, where in fact, originally there was only four items. And I call them items rather than precepts, because at that time they were items. And the fifth precept, the Surda Nerya Macha Pama Tadana Wayramadi was added for social convenience. And that is to abstain from alcohol, because alcohol leads to heedlessness. And when one is drunk or heedless, they're much more likely to uh, break one of the other precepts. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but we've seen that with technology, being drunk is downright dangerous. I mean, if somebody's drunk in, an, in a bar fight, let us say 2,000 years ago, and he's got no weapons and he wants to fight, about all anybody has to do is just stand back and let him fall down on his face. If he's yeah. got a weapon, they have to be more careful. If he's got a gun, we really have, I mean, now he's really dangerous, much more dangerous than he would be if he, if he were sober. But when he's drunk and, and has no weapon, now he's defenseless. But if he's drunk and has a gun, he's all gun and no sense. The same thing is true when they're out driving a car. When someone is drunk driving, they're a weapon out there ready to, to kill them. So this is, uh, and they, they knew that way back when. I think that it was in the time of King of Soak when they put that precept in about alcohol because there had already been an issue about it. But let's go back to the issue about um, the right speech. And we can begin to see that lying is only one of four items. But in fact, we can have malicious gossip and tell the truth. We can actually be, be harsh and tell the truth. We can actually be telling the truth about something or another out there, but it's just irrelevant. It's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's got no real value about it. An example of that would be reincarnation, would be frivolous talk. Why? Because it's all going to happen either before we're, uh, we're born or after we die, and it doesn't have any relevance for this particular moment so much as the past 10 minutes has more relevance than the past 100,000 years. So that would be frivolous. Go ahead. 
uh, about right speech and wrong speech. I mean, it, that's the uh, in the eightfold uh, noble path. Ah, so you finally answer my question. Okay, where did these precepts come from? The answer is, is that they're items on the Eightfold Noble Path, except yeah. that they're not. There's, uh, it's broken down as to right action and right speech, and right action includes um, the issue of. And by the way, I still got to congratulate you again that you know this. I mean, I asked you the question and I expected you to answer and you didn't you didn't know where the precepts come from. And now you recognize they're on the path, right? <laughs> These are path items. And so uh, on the path, we have path. this right action. More simplified version of the path, like the path broken down or something. Yeah. Exactly. So right action includes almost all of the precepts except for the one right speech. And then we also have the, the additional item that we call right livelihood, which can better be understood to be right lifestyle. What's, what kind of life do you live? And so here's the point about it, that the eight precepts, or excuse me, the eightfold noble path, is a noble path and the precepts are not noble they are ordinary right view they are okay. certainly right but they are ordinary right view that they that they become noble when they're pa uh, their path factors now the way that the path and the best very best example of uh, an explanation of the eightfold noble path is Sutta number 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha opens it up with the statement of, uh, listen, monks, and I will tell you about right organization of the mind or right unification of the mind. Now, this is known as Sama Arya Samati, but it's been translated wrong as concentration, right concentrated mind. We're not talking about concentration, we're talking about right organization. That you can take a clock, let's say an old grandfather clock, and take a sledgehammer to it and concentrate it, but you're not going to have a clock after that. that what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to tinker and fix the clock so that it takes, so it keeps good time. And so that's a samati clock, not one that's been bashed into smithereens to make it small. And this is what the difference is, is that we're not trying to concentrate the mind. We're trying to organize it. Now, how do we organize the mind? Well, the answer is that's what we've been teaching all along. And that is, is that we have right view, right sati, right effort and, and uh, right attitude. And these things bring about the right organization of mind. These are the, re uh, the supports. And then the affiliates or the um, um, the surrounding items of that organized mind is, is that when your mind is, in fact, correctly organized, when you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to take any wrong action in order to get it because you don't even want it. Also, it's true that if you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to go engage in uh, unwholesome speech in order to get it because your mind is already in a wholesome state and you probably don't want anything. And so therefore, you're not going to go around trashing this uh, person 
or trashing them to their face or lying behind their back or doing any of that kind of stuff because your mind is already settled and organized. But it's good to recognize that those boundaries are there so that we can uh, make sure that when we're not crossing that boundary, that that means that the mind is at least organized enough to not cross that boundary. But after we get the mind completely organized, there's no boundary there because we're not about to go off in that direction. We don't have to have a fence there. We don't need these things called precepts because the mind is just not going to go in that direction anyway. It's going to go in the wholesome direction. So this is why we're looking at precepts and you're still looking at precepts from the position of part of a religion or the way that things should be or um see uh, what you do i mean you should like your mind should follow the precept what uh, why i said uh, the precept against lying is is important because i notice and i notice it in my mind it's there's really a big difference i mean at least for me if you pay attention there is a difference between a mind that lies and a mind that just is okay with just with the truth ah exactly the case exactly true things but a mind that it's okay whatever the truth is is centered it's it's different it's not the same thing and ah, when but lie, here's the thing that someone who is lying then means that they want something yeah they're okay. thirsty or they're clinging to something this is what creates lies and in fact that's why politics has so much lies so many lies and it is because political parties are set up around ideologies of the way things that should be rather than looking at how things need uh how we can work with things right this very minute they always have a very very distant future someday our political party will take our country in that direction and because of that we're willing to bend the truth any way that we can the way things are to get it the way that we want it to be so even good people lie. Even good people lie because good people want good things. The problem yeah. is not the good or the bad. The problem is the wanting. Yeah, bad is beyond good and bad, really. Yeah. It's yeah. really a, right. It's beyond the good and the bad. It's it's that are we going to have the kind of thoughts that lead to uh, having a wholesome life? And so going back to then to that issue of that with in, in certain kind of relationships and friendships, we want to have the friendship is more important than the truth. And this is really, really true when it comes to, in fact, psychologists are trained. And you probably know this, the psychologists are trained to not tell the client what the uh, the client what the therapist thinks is the, is the diagnosis of the client or at least some of the details they want the client to figure that stuff out for themselves and so the the therapist often does not tell the client the uh, the old story is is that if you tell the client what's wrong with him and he agrees he will say well thank you very much doctor I appreciate it. I'm cured now. I don't need you anymore. Goodbye. 
But if the therapist tells the client what's wrong with him and the client disagrees, then he'll say, you don't know me at all. I'm out of here. Goodbye. And so telling the truth often is a dangerous thing to do that you can get into trouble by telling the truth and get one response or telling the truth and getting another response that we have to learn to tell things, let us say, in the, with good timing, which is part of wisdom. And, and that the Buddha has actually mentioned that in the sense of the phrase that you see quite often is the, the teachings of the Buddha are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. That in fact, um, uh, we, could use, we could actually add uh, some quality to that word good in the sense that um, we could say that, that it's sensationally good in the beginning. It's sensationally good in the middle, and it's sensationally good in the end. But then there's got another a phrase that goes along with that, and that is, is that when it is taught with the correct meaning, phrasing, and timing. In other words, the student has to have things set up so that they get the right timing, because if they get the right information at the wrong time, then they'll misunderstand it, and then they will revert back to wrong behavior again. An example of that is the distinction then between right attitude, excuse me, wrong view and ordinary right view, that, or, that wrong view says, oh, I can get away with it. Okay. And, uh, and ordinary right view says, no, you can't get away with it because we're going to hire police, we're going to get an army, and if that can't stop you from being misbehaved, we're going to get a priest or we're going to get a rabbi, or we're going to get a uh, mullah, and they'll get, they'll take care of you. And the, that's the joke of that, uh, that the ordinary right view says is that you get good results from good behavior no matter what, even if you're dead, or that you have, have, you have bad action, you will have to suffer bad results for that no matter what, even if you're dead. So this is the way that right ordinary view is set up. And when this individual understands then about right noble view in the wrong way, then he gets the wrong idea that he can get away with it and he will revert back and do things in um, an ordinary wrong view kind of way. He will revert back to breaking the precepts. So. We could do it like this. In other words, if I do not teach the precepts um, or if I say, oh, don't bother with those old precepts because that's not really what's on the Eightfold Noble Path anyway. If I said it that way, then people might hear it that way and says, oh, that means that the precepts don't matter anymore and I can go and kill. I can go and steal. I can go and tell lies. And so we have to be careful about describing what the Noble Dhamma is in order to prevent people from taking good information and misusing it. And so this is why we have to be careful with telling the truth, because sometimes the truth is as dangerous as a loaded gun. You've probably heard this, the phrase that the pen is mightier than the sword. 
Yeah, probably some people are not ready for the truth, but well, that's absolutely correct. And guess what? Sometimes those people can either see it as as wrong view in themselves and go off and harm themselves and others. But it's also possible for people who have ordinary right view can hear the noble Dhamma in the wrong way and get really, really angry and uptight about it. Okay, and so then they start using words like, oh, layabouts, you're just lazy. Yeah, but, uh, or, but it's personal preference, but for me, I prefer the truth. Whoever says the truth, I'll be the, their destiny. Uh, I'm open about it. I don't really have much judgment and. Uh, well, that's quite that's quite admirable. But here's the, here's the thing, though, that the truth itself was, as I said before, not what the Buddha taught. What he says that he teaches is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda, but there is that sutta there where uh, Ananda comes. The name of the sutta, by the way, is the Half Sutta. You can Google Half Sutta and it'll come right up. Where Ananda asks the Buddha after having a conversation with Sariputta, where um, Sariputta said, uh, that friendship is half the Dhamma. Now you can see that friendship can be one or the other things. Normally when we hear friendship, we're talking about friendship with other people in the sense of don't lie to other people. But when Ananda asks that to the Buddha, the Buddha says, oh no, that's not true. It's not half the, it's not half the Dhamma, it's the whole Dhamma. It's the whole show to learn to be friends with yourself, which means in a way to stop hiding from ourselves and to stop hiding from what's real on the inside because we can accept it. So I thought it was it, a friendship with the noble ones, not just pardon? ordinary. Uh, uh, this sutta, I thought it was talking about noble friendship, friendship with the noble ones, not like ordinary friendship. No, it's friends with absolutely anything that's happening in this moment. But Whatever the Brahma Vihara is right here, right now, that's your friend. But uh, friendship is like, like metta. And the Brahma Actually, Vihara. Metta right. is kind of the outcome rather than the cause of friendship. Okay. What does the word metta actually mean? Possibly the most um, technically correct definition would be kindness. Well, look at the word kind and you can see kindred and you can see with kindred, the German word uh, is also family. All right. So when we're when we're kind to people, that means we treat them like family or we treat them like friends. But that means that if you if you are friends, you're going to be kind. You're not going to be brutally honest. You're going to be kind. This sutta, I'm quite sure. I mean, I'm, I probably should go back to see it. But I thought it was association with uh, association with wise people, association with the noble ones, like something like that. It's not like anyone, because I can be with someone who is like doing bad stuff, and I can pick up a bad habit from him. It's gonna hurt me. Right. I would not I would not recommend that you stay in association with people who are subject for you to pick up bad habits, 
but you don't trash them and torture them and tell them bad things as you're leaving and saying goodbye. You say a friendly goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that you're you're misunderstanding what I'm saying in the sense of saying, oh, that means that I have to go make friends with the lowest trash that there is. Well, I don't think that you're quite ready for that. Maybe some beings are. Maybe some are so enlightened that they can walk around and just touch other people and them and it rubs off. But yeah. for who you are right now. Yeah, it's very yeah. well for you to associate with others that are on the noble path as opposed to associating with others just from happenstance or uh, availability and other things like that to actually go out and seek noble friends. This is why we set up the Sangha UK is for people to make noble friends with one another. Is so oh, yeah. that we can have a community because I've heard that so often. In fact, I think that we've had a talk about it long time ago in the sense that you don't know anyone in your community this following the Dhamma. Right now, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm fine. You know, uh, in the past, I was looking for, and I mean, I, I was feeling naughty and I wanted to feel like having a community, but right now, like, I'm All fine. All right, in that regard, now that you're already at that level, we can say that now they need you as a friend. Yeah, I'm a I'm, I'm friend with anyone who, like, wants to be my friend. All right. Well, if you're looking for having noble friends, then going on to the Sangha UK and, and saying, saying hi and being friendly would be the way of making noble friends. But the important thing, though, is to be friendly on the inside in the sense of, like you were saying, when you see that selfishness inside, instead of criticizing it and saying, oh, you should not be selfish, because that's still more of the same thing. Instead, you can say, aha, there I go. I can see that. Wow, everything is really great when I can really look at and see what's going on. Because in a way, if we tell ourselves, oh, thou shalt not be selfish, that's, that's almost harsh speech. We're harsh with each other. We're harsh on the inside. We're harsh with ourselves. If we're harsh with ourselves on the inside, then it's likely we're going to be harsh with ourselves on the outside. So we need to make friends on the inside so that we don't have to be harsh with ourselves. We can be friendly instead, don't have to criticize. Yeah, I'm kind of... There I go again. Well, I caught it again. Thinking about something that's going to make trouble. Here's an exact example of that. Remember in the beginning of this conversation when uh, to tie all of this back together, when I was talking about getting the um, the network up, getting it up and uh, operational with all of the uh, drives, uh, including the backups that are still active. Mm -hmm. When at each individual stage along the way, everything is an idea and then I'll try it and nothing ever works out exactly the way that the idea was arranged because there's a lot of complexity. Where are the fans are going to be? Where are the cables going to be located? Do I have the cables labeled right? So I know uh, without having to go search that if I got this end of the cable, where's the other end of it? 
So you got 30 or 40 drives, you might have 30 or 40 cables all in a big pile. Can we have all of that stuff organized? Well, here's the point that I'm making is, is that if I have an idea and I don't go to the computer to, to implement the idea, and then 10 minutes later or an hour later or maybe a day later, I'll have that same thought a second time. The second time I've had that idea without implementing it is a waste of my time. And I say, ha, I see that. I see that I'm trying to do the same thing over and over again without actually going to the computer to do it. And to get a big joke out of that. That's that's hilarious. Trying to re repair a computer that's in the other room. You can't do it. <laughs> you got to go get some hands on. You got to go get some skin in that game. Got to go try that thing out. And so we can begin to see things like that, that over and over again, sometimes we'll have the same thought over and over again, and we don't do anything about it. Why should we bother having that thought a second, the third, a fourth, and the 19th, and the 300th time? We can wake up to that. We can think of more happy thoughts. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, th this I don't have it. I'm happy to not. I'm more in control of that. I don't think these thoughts have. Well, that just shows you've been practicing correctly. Congratulations. This is what the whole practice is all about, is to take those unwholesome thoughts out and just enjoy the moment. So, so yeah, really, that's, uh, that's <laughs> the thing. I'm really bothered when I uh, break the precepts. I mean, I'm, I'm not like breaking them on a big scale, but even on, on small. Oh, but when you do, be happy that you can see that you're breaking the precepts because your only other option is to break the precepts again by being harsh with yourself. Okay, and not only that, but that harsh language that we have of, oh, you should not be breaking those precepts. That kind of thought then is actually an unwholesome thought because it prevents us from being happy. We feel guilty because we've broken the precept. And Martha, do you think that shift my attention more to the Eightfold Noble Path rather than the, the five precepts? Precisely. Exactly so, that in fact, you can say that you give the kids precepts because they're not ready for the Eightfold Noble Path. Now that you've got the Eightfold Noble Path, you can let go of the child's toy of precepts and start hanging on to how is my mind? What's in the mind? Including that if I've just broken a precept in, in reality, then what is my next thought? If my next thought is forgiving and loving and maybe trying to remove it or uh, uh, mollify it or whatever like that and, and have a sense of well-being is the way is the correct way rather than being harsh on yourself and down on yourself yeah I'll do a review uh, take for the treat yourself like a tender infant you wouldn't punish a tender infant the first time that he makes a poo but yet when that child grows up to the age of 16, if he takes a dump on the carpet in the front room, everybody's going to be really unhappy. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so we need to get out of that mentality that it wasn't a, uh, that breaking of the precept was not taking a big dump on the carpet in the living room. It was just the baby's poke, the first one. Aha, look at that. What an amazing poop that baby just did. I didn't even know he was going to do it. This is the first one. This is what actually they mean by beginner's mind, is let every moment be fresh. 
Let every moment be the beginning of everything that we don't have to make a bunch of rules about how it should be, but rather we can just see, aha, I see that. Rather than, aha, I see that and I don't like it because it breaks that stupid rule. Okay. Yeah. It seems like that would have the opposite effect. Like I'm thinking about the therapeutic example that you were giving earlier and a therapist would never be like, I mean, I don't know, never, but uh, I think that uh, a therapist wouldn't want to say, hey, like, stop drinking, like, right now, because it'll have the backfire effect in the opposite. I think it's called the backfire effect in psychology, mm -hmm. where the person will be like, will get defensive, will not, will, you know, not show up to the next se uh, mm -hmm. session because they're feeling judged. Uh, uh, the, the therapist is being too critical with them, but the, the interest and curiosity, like, oh, right, seems to be more wholesome or, or having that loving attitude or un unconditional positive regard. Um, wow, what a highfalutin word for friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, friendship. Right. Say, it, say it again. Unconditional positive regard. Unconditional positive regard. All right. So that's how we should begin to see our own mind is have unconditional positive regard when we catch ourselves breaking the precepts. Now, actually, let's go a little bit deeper in this because it's got um, another layer to it. And that is, is that um, in a sutra number 48, there is this idea about how does a monk uh, correctly operate with wrong behavior, that he's done something wrong. All right. But this is done in the regard to the path. And that the path uh, that we're talking about is from the from the first step of the Sotapan, the first step on the noble path up to the full fruition of this stream entry or the um, sotapan, there's this middle point in there, which is this point about one's wrong behavior. So the first items on the list actually do almost all of the work. It's a really, really big uphill climb to get enough positive attitude so that you know that you can clean out the mind. Okay, that in fact your sila now is good because it's good in the mind. That we've removed hindrances and removed hindrances and removed hindrances and removed hindrances over and over and over again. And because we're removing hindrances over and over again, at that time when they're removed, our sila is perfect because we're only having positive, wholesome thoughts. And not having any part. And so the, the first step of the path then is when the student knows for absolutely sure beyond the shadow of his own doubt, but in fact is confirmed because of his past successes over and over again, that no matter what happens, all he has to do is to wake up and he can then take care of anything. He can handle his mind no matter what obstructions are there. In other words, we can get arrested by the cops and we can handle that. We can get sick and to the point of death and we can handle that. Even die. 
and we can die right i can handle that too i can handle anything this is the first step i don't have to have a breach of sila oh i hate death oh death's a really bad thing you know that's now it. we are we're actually trashing death that's i mean we can have all kinds of negative gossip that's what the medical industry is all about is trashing death nobody likes it nobody's tried it and if those who do, they don't ever give up any testimonials. We've never gotten any testimonials about what death is like. So we all have a bad idea about it because it's been trashed nonstop since the dawn of history. But we should have an open mind to it. In fact, it might be quite delicious. Some people think so. Some people think it's kind of a hell. But it's up to you to investigate. So. This this whole thing then is um, about getting the mind cleaned out in this point, and we know that we can do that. That's when sila, and then the next step is um, you've you've heard it sila samatipanya. These are the first three steps on the path of seven to the to sotapan. The first one is the sila. In other words, no matter what happens, I can keep my mind pure. Number two, which is basically making friends with the mind. No matter what happens, I'm going to nourish and be friendly with my mind. No matter what kind of thoughts that I have, I'm going to be gentle and kind. No harsh language inside. So that's the way that we would look at that. The next phase then is getting the mind into a state where we can really look and see things very, very clearly. This would be then the purification of the mind. So first purification of sila, then the purification of the mind, which means we gain peace and quiet and serenity. This is actually could be the hallmark of a good, steady first jhana practice. And that goes along with the third step, which is uh, purification of view. Now here, the purification of view is all about anatta, anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's about the um, uh, dependent origination, and it's all about the understanding of the nature of dukkha. And so this is where the uh, the real work is done, is in this uh, purification of view, so that the view becomes a noble view. It's no longer an ordinary view, it's a noble view, and that uh, purification of view then leaves one completely free from doubt. Completely free from doubt about whether or not I can do it, who's going to get this job done, and do I have the tools to do it in the sense of knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. This is it, knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path is that right noble view that is acquired that is the purification of view so now we're ready for step four and that's the one that we're talking about and that is once one gets their self to that position that doesn't mean that they're going to be completely free from any wrongdoing because they're going to do it from time to time they're going to not remember even though they're quite noble already they're still on the path of nobility the real trick comes in this willingness to see wrongdoing is okay, but in fact, it's a learning experience. We no longer see wrongdoing as wrong. In fact, we see wrongdoing as an opportunity to growth.
that in fact all education is gained by making mistakes and adjusting our behavior. People who do not make mistakes means that they do not adjust their behavior and they don't learn anything. Damarato. Yes. In, in improvisation, we we have that concept and we call it failing with joy. Yes. Excellent. Precisely mm -hmm. so. Failing with joy. Because that's how new music happens. Failing with joy is what makes stage plays really interesting sometimes. It's because things don't go to the absolute script that people were thinking about. This guy forgot his lines or he dropped his candle or all kinds of possibilities for impromptu. And if you are skilled at your job, it becomes a joy rather than a tragedy. This is exactly right. Okay, so your wrongdoing or your breaking of the precepts then should be now at that level of, aha, I see that! Rather than saying, oh no, I don't like that, I shouldn't be doing that, I'm breaking the precepts, I should hide that. Like that, Demarato, it's more about that I know it's going to have consequences. It directly has consequences on the concentration and on the state of my mind, and just now it's just hiding that. Like, I see the effects of what I'm doing. That's the, the sad part. <laughs> like, direct, observable results. Yes, so, so begin to enjoy the mind that you have, rather than saying, I'm not going to enjoy this mind, I'm going to only enjoy a mind that I want, but I don't have yet, I've got to develop it. And when I develop it, then I'll like it. Much better way of looking at it is, oh, I like it right now. It's okay the way that it is. We can make some tinkering in, but we only have to tinker with it. We don't have to take a ball-peen hammer to it. We can just tinker with it. Get the smallest screwdriver out <laughs> and just play with it. This is the way that we look at it, okay? And so this fourth item on this list, this fourth knowledge, is the willingness to change our mistakes into learning opportunities they have the idea then of take if you got a lemon you just you just squatted a lemon make some lemonade if you've got lemon make lemonade out of it that's the way that we look so every time that you see wrongdoing within yourself every time you can you catch yourself in a lie you say aha i see that it's, it's kind of worse because sometimes I see that I'm going to do a bad thing and I still do it anyway because I really do it when I really uh, it's, it's a little bit difficult to not break the presets uh, that's when I do it ah but then you should look at that ah feeling yeah. that's what you need to look at at that point is that ah oh, you know that struggle within that you have about, I really want to do that, and I really know it's against the rules. Start looking at that push-pull, that ah in there, because that's what we're talking about. In instead, be friendly in your approach. Oh, you don't really have to do that. You're okay without it, aren't you? Rather than, oh, it's against the rule, don't do it. Uh, yeah. The right approach, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. That, okay, now now we're getting it. Yes, now we're hearing it. This is the way. Yeah, that. thank you for staying with me so that I can try different ways and to, to get this point in. Yes, this is it. The one this I is want to 
you know it's it's a uh, it's more i think it's the right way to do like uh, to get into deeper meditation it's not focusing it's also right concentration it's not focusing on things it's like letting go of the outside things and bring the difficult inwards and bring those attentions that were going elsewhere you let go and well, they go inwards the things that you're gathering together you can use the word concentration but the things that we're gathering together would be the jhana factors and the first jhana factor after we remove the hindrance that's the first thing and then the next is to have a sense of well-being that sense of well-being can be uh, broken down to feeling safe secure and comfortable and with that feeling of well-being comes satisfaction that i'm really satisfied with this present moment this is the sukha because this sukha that i've just described is in fact exactly opposite of dukkha we're actually satisfied as opposed to being dissatisfied and so this is the basis then that we go with as well as that ability to apply the mind to the wholesome and keep it sustained there which means that we're only allowing wholesome thoughts in and pretty soon we begin to get really feeling good wow this is really amazing stuff and that that amazing quality of it comes in that's the pity that's the wow feeling this is really so nice yeah and okay, so these are the kind these yeah. are the factors that you're uh intending to draw together is a real appreciation for how nice things are in this present moment okay the, I, I found a way, Damarato, of getting to the first jhana. Another way, it's through gratitude. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I well, absolutely. The, the Buddha talks about various ways. This practicing hard in meditation is only one of the items. In fact, I've seen you uh, in particular go in and out of first jhana while we've been talking in this particular conversation. Yeah, but I mean, when you, like you really get the real genre, your mind is into it. Okay, so I'm gonna explain it how to get it through gratitude. It's like you appreciate everything. Like you put yourself that you appreciate the, that breath that you have it. You appreciate it so well. You treat it so well that you, you're so grateful that you have this breath. And when you let it inwards, you're so grateful. You don't. You treat it so well. You treat the the breath like you're treating like something precious, like a precious, like gold or something. You treat that breath very it well. It keeps you alive. It's better than gold. You, to that. you can have gold, you can have bars in each hand and die. Yeah. Gold yeah. is of no value if you can't take this next breath. That's how important this next breath is. That's how important this, next, this moment really is. It's life-giving. Of course, we're going to be grateful. This, this is what gratitude is all about, of course. <laughs> you really do it, and you put that breath in your body, spread it in your body. It's, it's a way to get to the first jhana. I get it the is, absolutely. I can't, I, not a doubt, without oh, a doubt. I've done it often. <laughs> it was like a handful, like I discovered it. And Yes, in fact, I would go so far as to say that that gratitude that you're talking about is the fastest way into first jhana. Within a breath or two. <sighs> it really needs to let go of everything. Like you, you put yourself beneath everything, like you're so low and you appreciate the smallest things. 
just this breath is so good. Well, that's a visual image that you can have that would be uh, useful. Uh, but the whole idea of uh, being so thankful, so grateful, so um, uh, appreciative of this present moment is the gathering of the jhana factors right there. To just stay on that point, to apply the mind to gratitude and sustain the mind on gratitude will bring one right into first jhana. Absolutely. And congratulations to you for figuring that out all by yourself. Or maybe you heard it from me already before and we both forgot. <laughs> <I don't> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like accidental. And I'm kind of being stuck on that. It's not like I, I don't want to call it being stuck, but I really don't only meditate when my mind feels like meditation because the effects are much better. I like I don't want to force my mind into doing something it doesn't like. So when I really OK, I want to meditate. I do meditation. I just stay if all I you do have it. to do is remember that's what sati is all about is just to remember because you've already gotten to the point of liking it so all you have to do is remember it and then you say yeah i can do that i can take a deep breath i think there's a lot of mind activity uh, that's why i'm not I, like my mind doesn't get into the second genre like there's stuff going on you know everyday life and you don't need the second jhana right now what you need is to cultivate the first jhana this is something that most students in the west make huge mistakes about they don't understand that the important job is to develop and sustain the first jhana this is throughout the suttas it's in the anapanasati sutta it's in sutta number 38 when he's talking about how he actually found the path to enlightenment. The key to the path of enlightenment is the first jhana. That's right there in the suttas. And yet Westerners saying one is good, two is better, three is four. I want more. OK, and so up the ladder they try to climb without understanding that the real issue is to get yourself into a state of really, really nice, relaxed state where all of your thoughts are wholesome one after another. And then we can begin to put some gaps into those thoughts. And when we have long gaps in those thoughts, that gap between the thoughts are the second jhana. But we want to always come back to a wholesome thought back to first jhana. The way that the students practice it when they do get second jhana, they will actually, when it ends, they don't go back to first jhana. They pop right back into hindrances. And then they want more second jhana. And so uh, second John is actually uh, it's it's got a trap. It's got real boxes with it. It's got baggage and that baggage is desire wanting something that we don't have rather than I'm so relaxed that I don't even have to think. Now that's going into second John is when you're so relaxed, you don't even have to think about it. It feels so good. And in fact, that so good feeling feels so good, and we begin to start noticing that so good feeling that we don't even have to think about it anymore. We can just experience that so good feeling. How good does it feel? It feels so good. I don't want to force my mind. That's the thing. I want to be. Well, it's, 
going to go if to you're going place. to be up and about and around in the world then you need to keep your mind open you need to keep your eyes open you need to remember to look at where you're doing what you're going and now when you're out and about in the world now you've got two jobs to do one is to keep track of what's happening on the inside of the mind as well as what's keeping what's happening out in the real world Generally, when people go out without any practice at all, when they go out in the real world, they forget about what's happening on the inside of their mind and they just react to what's happening in the world, which means now that what's happening on the inside is normally going to be instinctual. It's going to be automatic pilot. They're not really paying attention to what's going on. An example of that is when two people are talking and one is talking and talking, the other guy is not listening. He's just trying to think of what he's going to say. Instead of really paying attention to what's going on, he's engaged in what is he going to say next? Okay, so um, we uh, we see the world, but if we could see that all oh, all I'm doing is preparing for my next uh, opportunity to talk, I can stop that and I can say, wait a minute, let me actually pay actual attention to what's happening out here. Instead of paying it, instead of listening to the internal dialogue aimlessly or mindlessly and not not knowing what actually we're doing. And so this is why it's good to develop a sitting practice that's away from the world so that we can really get in gear or get into the habit of watching what's going on on the inside of the mind. So that when we go out to the outside world, we're still watching what's going on on the inside of the mind. Because that's what is mostly happening anyway. Yeah, an, an extreme example that I think of is when I was younger, what I used to do is think of what I was going to say, and I'd be thinking about it so long that by the time that I had something to say, the conversation was maybe 10, 20 minutes <laughs> further mm -hmm. along, where they right. were going, oh, you're, you're back on that point. Our conversation has moved forward. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and yeah, no, it, it reminds me of that. Yes, it, that's a clear example of what we're talking about is, is that one student in, in a group will pop up with something that's 10 minutes old now. Because you, you know where he is, he's not keeping up with what's happening, he's keeping up with what's going on in his mind, but he doesn't even know that. He doesn't realize that the group has moved on. <laughs> so, Let's tie all of this back together with the original point about the book, Games People Play. The Games People Play is uh, chapter 12, thanks for reminding me of that, of the book by Eric Byrne. It was a bestseller in the 1970s. And that it's got this one good game, and the one good game is the busman's holiday. Did you ever find out what the one busman or the one bus driver whose own all the other games have two players or more? This one has only one player. What does the bus driver do on his holiday? Yeah, the busman's holiday. Well, the little I've got the section here, it's just one paragraph. Uh -huh. Um well, you can say it in two words. He rides the bus. He rides the bus. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. What do we do in retirement is we do the same thing over and over again we've been doing our whole lives. 
that's profound. What we're doing now is because of the habit of doing it. That's what Byrne is pointing out there, that the busman, when he's on a holiday, but now he can enjoy it before it was work, before he had to really pay attention, get that money and all of that kind of stuff. But now that he's on holiday, he can ride the bus, and now he can appreciate all of the views that he couldn't see before because he kept his eye on the road. He can actually meet the passengers on the bus and become friends with them, and before they were nothing but just patrons. They were just bus riders. Now those old ladies can become his friend. They're very, they're already familiar, and he's already very familiar with them. So now that he's sitting in the uh, in the passenger area of the bus, he can actually be friends with them. And so when I read that, I knew exactly what my whole life was going to be. That whatever your retirement is is what you're doing right now anyway. Only now in retirement. The importance has been taken out of it. And so we, now we can just enjoy life. And in fact, you can be on Buston's holiday at any point in your life. To where we're actually riding the bus rather than driving it. It brings more satisfaction to one's life, really. Mm -hmm. It's very essential to, to the practice. Right. And so, um, Going back then to the network, why am I building a network here at the age of 75 that's probably one of the largest networks in Thailand, especially if it's non-commercial? Probably, I mean, like Lazada and a few places like that have networks probably bigger than mine. But why would someone build a network like that? The answer is because it's fun. I now know how to do it. <laughs> and it's a joy. It's a toy. And if it goes down, I've got no bosses breathing. Get that network back up. If my network goes down, it's okay. I can leave it down for days. Or much. <laughs> Which network? I mean, the one uh, on Skype, that's... Uh, I haven't been Pardon? following you. I mean, the, the, the whole network. I mean, what, what is it? No, the network that I'm talking about is the network of uh, computers that I have at the house. In my house, I have one, probably about 15 computers. Mm -hmm. This and one, that one, one in the bedroom, the big server, a whole bunch of Linux uh, servers that are under chairs. And in storage and whatnot, because they're offline now. Uh, but yeah, all of that hardware and all those hard drives are right right here. And, and what is it, Vinod, this network? Uh, it's almost, well, one drive and it's backup, another drive, is almost all 100% documentaries. Hmm. Right. Probably six, seven thousand documentaries, a lot of BBC, a lot of Nova, a lot of stuff like that. All right. Uh, on another set of hard drives, I have Disney. But in that mm -hmm. Disney is a lot of other stuff besides Disney. Mostly it's Warner Brothers that have cartoons. So there's basically Disney and which is all Disney plus any cartoons go into the Disney. OK. Then there's the kind of movies that have superheroes like Marvel. So Marvel, there is a sub 
uh, folder that's got only Marvel movies in it. It's got uh, superheroes and all of that kind of stuff. And, and also uh, Superman and Tarzan, uh, Jurassic Park. All of those are in a, uh, on one folder in one set of drives called Epic. Another one is All War All the Time, and it's got a whole lot of World War II movies, but any movie that's a war movie goes into that. The other group would be Westerners, any, any Western. Doesn't matter how old it is, all the Westerners. But then there's another one that's a big one, and that is really old movies from the 19-teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, up until the 1960s are all on one drive. So if you want really old stuff, I've got about 8,000 movies of old stuff. Yeah, I think the, 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 the old stuff is better because I just want to say that uh, I don't think it's really safe to watch movies that are produced nowadays. There are a lot of brainwashing going on, a lot of ideologies being they, spread. Exactly. I would agree. Uh, very safe to watch. By the way, I'm not a movie fan. I'm how to say it. When someone walks into the library, there are normally two kinds of people. One is one who wants to read something, and then the other kind of person in the library is a librarian. Right? If you think of it in the sense of a, a big network with huge numbers of hard drives and servers and uh, folders and all that kind of stuff, you can say that really what I am is a librarian. I don't watch movies. The only reason that I would watch a movie is to make sure that the file is good so that I can go forward and, and click through it without the uh, the software crashing. That the movie is actually a good movie, that it doesn't come up with errors or whatnot. But also I agree with you because um, one of the thoughts about it is, is that the really old movies, let us say before 1970 especially. Yeah. Is, is that the technology that they had was real stuff. In other words, they had a real stagecoach. Now in a modern movie, they may not even have a stagecoach there. They just painted that in. And all the ideology is being like pushed. It's so, it's so annoying. I don't want to. Right, there's a there's a lot of really good um, psychological stuff going on in the old, old movies. But nowadays it's either... Um, um, all excitement all the time or some sort of political propaganda. Sometimes they're mixed together. A good movie, I'll send you the name afterwards. It's called Zorba, the Greek. Zorba, the Greek. I'll send you the name afterwards. It's a good movie. It's, it's really funny. It's, it's kind of genuine. You can feel the, the human emotions and like it's, it feels real, real story. Uh, I'll send you the, the name of the movie. It's, it's an old movie. It's really great. I understand what you what you're getting at. Uh, often with old cowboy movies, there's, there's a lot of raw emotion that you can really yeah. understand what's what's going on, the motivations. To where in more modern movies, things are uh, they intentionally mess stuff up to keep people interested, so that they eventually come to the resolution that generally within three to four minutes in the movie, you're going to figure out what the end of the movie is going to be anyway, and all you have to do is just keep track of the action if you want to. Even the details, you know, in older movies, the details, sometimes they're not perfect, as well, like with real life. It's not always perfect. Some, If he wants to push something that doesn't go all the way, or I don't know, maybe some imperfection. And it's like, that's how life is. That's uh, how people mm -hmm. work in every other movies. They're all perfect. And it's just, uh, it's painful. 
movies these days are following like a a mythic narrative. They're following the the Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces, the same kind of loop uh, mm-hmm. over again with all the beats and all the moments just swapped out for you know different characters and different given circumstances, but the mechanics of the story. Yeah, that's right. All the same. Many of the movies are the same movie over and over and over again. So you'll have a, a main plot of uh, this small group of people are going to go in and attack this great big organization. We're going to have a lot of sparks and fireworks and, and some of them are going to die, but the, the main characters are going to walk out. Meanwhile, on the side is, is that you have the story of boy meets girl, girl hates boy, boy sucks up to girl. Boy hates girl. They work together. They solve the problem. They become heroes. And then at the end of the movie, boy and girl make out. I mean, how many movies are like that? (laughs) I would say maybe 10 or 20% of all the movies that have ever been made follow that one sequence. And so... uh, In a way, there's, there's a lot of similarities in there. But I would like to say this as a kind of a side point, and that is, is that one of the things that I like to do is to look at the movie not as a movie to be engrossed or involved with or see what's happening the way that the audience should be, what an audience is, but rather I like to look at it from the position of a film director or maybe a mechanic. So I'll be looking at where the microphones are and what kind of sound there is. I'll be looking at uh, the the props and seeing whether that door really has glass in it or not, or whether it's just stage stuff. Do you see the shadows of boom microphones across the set? Do you hear noises that, you know, they always talk about quiet on the set? Not all sets are are quiet. And you can hear stuff that doesn't have anything to do with um, uh, what's happening in the movie. Uh, that's by the way, that kind of stuff is much more likely in the really, really old movies because now they have technical ways of making the movie more perfect, but in a way by making it more perfect, they make it bland. But the old movies have a lot of um, idiosyncrasies to them. One example would be that the guy runs, uh, he's riding one color horse in the beginning of the movie and then he's wearing another color color horse later continuity they do that and and people think that they're just going to get away with that kind of stuff uh there's one example this is a very famous movie i forget which one it is but the scene starts off that uh, a whole group of people are in this war room doing this stuff and in the beginning of the scene and in the end of the scene the woman who's in there is wearing a black dress but there are sequences and scenes in the middle of that scene where she's wearing a red dress and nobody caught it or I mean, they uh, they get. I guess they caught it and just thought they'd get away with that. That people are not really watching, <laughs> and so movie makers will pull all kinds of stuff and get away with it because nobody's paying that much attention to it. So that's one of the ways that I like to look at movies. I started doing that when I was a kid, and I'm not really interested in a movie for the movie's sake. I'm interested in how the movie's made. But that's how I was introduced to movies. When I was introduced to movies, most people are introduced by sitting in a theater. I was introduced to movies by being in the projection booth with my dad. 
opening those great big cases of uh, films and pumping the, the film on the projector and winding it up like that. And so right from the very beginning, I was not interested in the content of the movie, what the, uh, the director wanted the audience to see. I was much more interested in what the director was doing, how the cameras work, all of that kind of stuff. So again, it's all technical, but I get a great deal of joy out of that because why should I be? Otherwise, I wouldn't bother watching it because the the action is all set in advance. You know what's going to happen anyway. And all the really spectacular stuff is not really any more spectacular done with real stunt drivers. I mean, if you really, here's an example of that is uh, uh, Jackie Chan. And you see the stuff that they're doing in that in those movies, especially the when when he's got the uh, um, uh, the electric cable that he's holding to while he's uh, walking down a bus that's in uh, going down the road, and he's he's doing that. And then you look at a documentary of how they make those movies, and it's like, oh well, that's what they're doing. And now it all becomes just special effects, and it's not spectacular anymore. It's all done with hokum pokum. That's what movies are nowadays, and that's what uh, um, uh, Nora is saying is that in the old days, stunt people actually did stunts. Nowadays, the computer just paints that stunt in. Another example is uh, how many cars do you see go uh, up in flames on the movies? And yet uh, the, the automobile industry since the 1950s have been very, very serious about making their automobiles flame-proof, that uh, tanks don't jet punctured and leak gas and go up in flames, except in movies. Very rarely do, hi uh, do uh, highway accidents um, show cars in flame. And not only that, but the worst case of it is, is that they will... Um, let us say, have this car going off the uh, the edge of the road down a major embankment, and the car catches fire while it's still in the air. <laughs> it didn't even hit the ground before it burst into flame. <laughs> and not only that, but when they do blow up, they're not really careful of where they put the explosives, that of course, that if it's going to explode, it's going to be the gas tank that explodes. But where do the, car, where do the cars in the movie explode? Up in the front. Yeah. Why? Because it's too much trouble to crawl under the car and put explosives on the gas tank. It's too dangerous also. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a really good video essay on this, uh, specifically on, on Jackie Chan as well, because mm -hmm. there are no edits or there are no cuts that are made. I think I'm trying to remember which, uh, which YouTuber it is, but the movies these days, they're, they're still doing the... Uh, they still have, you know, stunt doubles and people doing those scenes, but they're cutting in between to make it look, you know, they're cutting on the hit as opposed to just showing the full sequence of action. So exactly. It, it kind of uh, the impact. Do my birds uh, annoy you here? Uh, I have some birds. Are they annoying you? In their sound, there's this crying. No, I hear birds cheeping. Is it good or should I move them out? Or? No problem. Okay, no problem. Okay, because no maybe problem. But maybe they are disturbing. Me. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry to continue. Yes, Bird music. So yes, we were just 
kind of summing up about movies that I have also heard people say and read it that when someone gets into the Dhamma and they begin to really look at what's going on, television and movies and sitcoms and like that become uninteresting, just as we're talking about now, is, is that these things become kind of uninteresting because it's too easy to figure out what they're doing in the first place. When you're really looking at what's going on, you can see that, in fact, it's a bunch of trash. And so then you would say, um, well, why then do you collect so many movies? And the answer to that is, well, it's the busman's holiday. I don't care what happens to these movies, but I'm very careful to make sure that I don't lose any. And they go back now 20 years. In fact, uh, many of the music, I started with music files, getting uh, classical music as far back as 2002. And so that's how long, almost 20 years now, I've been collecting stuff. A lot of stuff since 2006 and whatnot like that. But by doing so, that allows me then to sample various things. It's a really, really excellent library. I think that someone could put it to use someplace, even though much of it would be, let us say, if it were monetized on YouTube, it would be copyright violations. But the old stuff, we got about 8,000 old movies. We could start a video channel if you want to upload some stuff. I don't. <laughs> There's already a bunch of old movies on anyway. They've got stuff I don't have. <laughs> but in fact, that's the first thing I'll do if I want a particular movie uh, for some reason. Like an example of that one was Pollyanna. Pollyanna is a really interesting movie, and there are several ver versions of it. And so uh, a student mentioned it. And I reckon I don't even have Pollyanna. And so I go to YouTube and sure enough, it's on YouTube. So I download it. So now I've got Pollyanna to put in to the um, to the thing. So that that's the way of, of uh, recognizing a few things I have to go look for only because somebody brings it to mind. But normally it's just I just keep it because I've got the hard drive space to do it. Then, in fact, in the past couple of years, the hard drive market has gone up so high that drives are so expensive now that I can actually take some of the hard, old hard drives that I've got and sell them on eBay, eBay for a profit. So I haven't bought any drives in several years, but I've rearranged so much stuff that I've got like maybe 30 terabytes. So I've got room for about 30,000 files that I haven't even downloaded yet. And um, so I keep downloading because I've got to, I, I guess that when I run out of room sometime, I'll, I'll stop downloading because from time to time I have stopped. It's, don't download for a while. It doesn't matter. Because it's just all just joy, just time structuring, just something to do. And so that's a, actually an interesting way of living is, is that nothing's really important. It doesn't matter whether it gets done or not. But I'll get around to do it, and I'll have fun when I do it. And when I'm not doing it, I don't bother about it. But that's the way that a hobby should be. And the trick is, is can you turn your work into a hobby? It just doesn't matter anymore. And you just enjoy your life.
That's Eric Burns' Western Holiday. I think in the ultimate sense, Demarato, if, uh, if you want like, to finish, finish the path, it's, we should make uh, jhanas, o- only jhanas our hobbies or something like that. Because these things, they're still uh, entangled in the world. It's still in the world. And uh, maybe there is like a slightly a little bit of attachment to things in the world. That's, I don't know, Um, well, the question is, though, can you go around in the world instead of uh, interacting with the world that you can stay in the first jhana so that you could just go around enjoying the show, just seeing the input and just experience it in a, in a state of wonder, in a state of wow, in the state of my goodness, look at that. That's the way that we can handle it with the first jhana. Now, in the second jhana, it's kind of hard to walk around. They say that you can do the second jhana, or in fact, it's possible uh, in walking meditation. But in, the, in that regard, with walking meditation, it, you should set boundaries. Rather than just going off on a walk and getting into the second jhana, because now you're really not watching where you're going. It would be very dangerous for you to be out and about in second jhana. Yeah, I think... Fourth jhana, you can stay in the body. I mean, because the uh, the first four jhanas, they, they are in the body, so you can just walk. You can well, it's not the first four. There are only four. There is not a first four. There are four. And then, like the formless ones and the space and nothing. The fourth else. jhana has all of that stuff within it. If you read the suttas correctly, you'll see that there is only four jhanas, and the fourth and the fourth jhana consist of how fast your mind is so that you're now working down at the level of perception and consciousness and that you can get beyond the level of feeling. So uh, that's what these higher jhanas are. It has to do with how fast the mind is working or how fast you can pay attention to the mind's working. And we can't do that until we get into the first jhana, which means now we're really paying attention. First John is being able to look and to see and to pay attention and to watch what's going on and sustain that. And then as we go into the higher jhanas, we still keep that quality of really looking at what's going on. And so that we look at feelings and we look at um, the way that the mind uh, creates images. I, right now we've gone too far to get into a detailed conversation about the uh, uh, sequence of events of Paticca Samuppada, but the jhanas are nothing more than getting faster and faster, which means we're getting deeper and deeper into the sequence of events of how the mind works, all the way down to the fact that if you can stop perception or slow it down and slow down the connection, that means that all of uh, our input comes through consciousness, and that's all there is. Because we're not perceiving it, we're not trying to interpret it, we're not trying to make sense out of it, we're not trying to understand it. So normally what happens is is that we see something, then we process it, and then we get an image, and then we have a reaction to it, and then we have feelings, and all of that kind of stuff. And that's what keeps us out of the real world, is because we're no longer in senses, we're no longer in consciousness, now we're in perception and feelings and all of that. So as you get the mind very fast, 
that means that you can get down to the level of seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, and experiencing reality without doing a lot of processing. Because we're not doing any processing, that means that we're not spending mind moments processing. We're spending all the mind moments paying attention to what's happening. And guess what? Then that's when we find out a whole lot of stuff is happening. Wow, what a lot of stuff is happening in this particular breath, in this one moment. There is so much stuff happening. But we don't see that there's much stuff happening because we're trying to grab hold of something and pay attention to it and understand it. So we, in a way, what we're doing is letting go of the mind so that we can get it faster and faster, so that we can actually see perception. We can actually see uh, consciousness and how they work together. We can see that uh, internal representation, that Saliatana. We can see that we grab stuff out of the past and bring it into that perception process. This is what the higher jhanas are, are about, to teach us, to show us exactly how the mind works at the most intricate detail level of the way that the mind operates. And guess what? To see that stuff is quite liberating, to recognize there is no self in there. This is just a human mechanism. And it's also a trap also. I mean, after afterwards, when you reflect on it, it's really a trap. Oh, well, the trap is, is that people begin to really like these genres. They're really nice. I mean, how relaxed can you be after all? <laughs> Why should I go piddle with a network when I'm having too much fun just sitting and doing nothing, a whole lot of nothing? If I'm hearing this right, it sounds like the fourth jhana has the arupa jhanas baked into it, and that there is an uh, a insight aspect to the fourth jhana, where the mind is now fast enough that we are seeing all the different uh, processes of mind prior to perception or prior to the making of or conceptualizing of what's what's happening or what's going on. Right. And how we do that uh, through speed is to back up faster and faster. So the process then would be that if we have wisdom at the point of contact, that would be first jhana, which means that we know how we feel. When we have a feeling and we know that feeling, then um, that, that knowledge allows us to behave according to that feeling with knowledge rather than behaving ignorantly because most people don't even know that they've got the feeling. Okay, so that's the starting point. The real starting point is uh, step six at that point of contact that pasa. From there, we begin to recognize that it's not the real world, the external world, that gives us that contact that rises feelings. It's what we made of that world. It's our internal representation. So in this regard, we can say that there's two kinds of consciousness. There is the sense consciousness, and then there is the internal consciousness. An example of that is I see the tree versus I see what you mean. The I see what you mean is a conceptualization, is a creation within the mind. And as that internal conceptualization has become ossified and rule bound over time. And so when we have a conceptualization, like for instance, uh, a breaking of the precept, 
instead of being joyful and recognize, oh, I broke a precept. Ah, I see that. Instead, we have this conceptualization, thou shalt not break precepts. Mm. And because of that concept, we actually punish ourselves when, in fact, we could be quite joyful instead. So it, this is the level, then, that we're recognizing that I created this. And what I'm creating is being hard on myself. Okay. And when I do that, then I can back up even further to recognize, oh, well, I've been doing that out of the habit, that that stuff is old. And so now we're looking at Paticca Samapada from the sense of the Sankara, or, oh, I feel bad about breaking the precepts because that's an old habit. I've been feeling bad about breaking the precepts for years. Let me make some changes in there so that I can feel good and uh, gain wisdom from breaking the precepts. And so now we're working at that level of uh, how do we perceive things or, or thinking about how do we think? How do we put things together? And we begin to see how the mind processes this thing called perception, which in the Pali is Nama Rupa, which means we take the Rupa, the reality, the form that we can see, hear, think, or excuse me, hear, feel, touch, taste, etc and bring it into the mind on the inside. And that process then is the second kind of consciousness. And that second kind of consciousness is polluted with the past in order to make sense out of it. And so at the highest level of jhanas, we're not doing any processing. We're just experiencing reality in, the, in its full bloom without having to think about it. We're just experiencing it. And so recognizing that we often the uh, what affects us is not um, the thought or the the seeing of breaking the precept. The reaction is, is that, oh, it's against the rules and I should not do that. Therefore, I'm a bad person or I should not do that. And then we feel bad because we're critical of ourselves rather than nurturing. So this nurturing thing that we're talking about is operating right there at that level of uh saliatana of how what am i creating in my mind now we can all see all of this stuff in first jhana but in the second and the third and the fourth jhana go up that means that our ability to see things become even more distinct one of the ways of saying it is is that with the first jhana we can suss that stuff out we can we can see it but within in the fourth jhana, it actually comes right out and slaps us in the face. Look at what you're doing. You go, <laughs> we can really, really see because we're really paying attention. That's what these four jhanas are, is getting, gaining much, much more ability to look exactly what the mind is doing at that um, within the within a second, within a half a second. Okay, uh, Damara, to, to like to give an example, I'm gonna ask you. Okay. Uh, 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 the precept of not killing. Uh, when, um, for example, when I kill an insect, let's say I kill an insect, I create the feeling bad that I killed an insect. It's it's also it's created, but like uh -huh. go into the intentions. What is my intention for me to kill that insect? 
why did I do it? It was a selfish thing. I mean, there is a part of my mind that just like it comes. That is an excellent question. You're asking a question at way after you've gone way too far. I, I don't think uh, like we no, can no, go No, no, listen around. to me. Just, just listen to me. You've gone way too far in the technical details. Okay, when you, you're using the word killing and you're taking it to an absolute extreme down to insects. You're not taking it extreme enough because uh, if you had that all the way down, then you would never take any medicines, especially not antibiotics, because the antibiotics will kill the bacteria in the body, and that's killing. So you can see how far we can go with that. In fact, just taking a breath will take in airborne animals that get stuck in your lungs and they never go back into the air. They die in your lungs. Maybe the next out breath will be the the dead bodies of the last in breaths, dead animals that you're breathing out. So how deep are you going to take this? How far are you going to take it? Here's the point of the start. The start is breathing animals. The poly has panatipata. Okay, that's the prana, anapana, and uh, the pata is to take, to take away the breath. And we're talking about it most specifically in the taking of the breath of sacrificial animals that the Buddha, like uh, Jeremiah in the Bible, was against the slaughter of animals. He called it, uh, Jeremiah called it the slaughter of innocents. And the Buddha was also very much against all of this animal slaughter for no reason at all. And so he went to King Pasanadi and, and gave a long talk about this. Why do the Brahmins want to kill 500 animals today in their sacrifice? So that means that they can eat for days and days and days. It's actually the animal sacrifice is for the priest dinner table and possibly nothing else. And so this is why the Buddha and uh, Jeremiah was against sacrificial um, slaughter, that you're not supposed to kill animals for no good reason at all. But as Dhamma dudes, we can recognize, I wouldn't go kill a human being with my bare hands. I wouldn't go kill a dog with my bare hands. I certainly would not kill a house cat with my bare hands not, and still have bare hands. It wouldn't be bare, they'd be really bloody. But in any case, but I can kill a mosquito with my bare hands, but that may not be a good idea. That if I have, the, I live in Thailand and we've got mosquitoes here. We've got a lot of them. And we know as a culture how to take care of mosquitoes. Westerners don't. So when they come to Thailand, they're really bugged and plagued with mosquitoes. But, but we could, a Westerner can get used to it. And one of the things that we do, if you can catch the mosquito actually biting, you don't slap it or kill it. You wave your hand around to get, to, to, to uh, move the air, and the mosquito will pack up his bags and leave. If you kill that mosquito while he is penetrating the skin, then you are killing that mosquito and forcing his nose and other parts of his body right into your skin, which then become affected. And not only that, but it's going to itch more. And not only that, but unmindfully, when the when mosquito uh, bites uh, itch, we scratch, making it worse. Okay, so look at all the unwholesome behavior that we had when we could have, in fact, handled that mosquito by just blowing air or <clears throat> blowing on it 
and he'll pack his bags and leave. But if I kill him, now I've got all kinds of trouble. And I don't have to wait until I go to hell after I die to get punished for that mosquito killing. I'm going to get punished right then and there for it. I should be mindful and watch what I'm doing. Now, there's other kinds of animals that is actually um, not useful. For instance, I do not want to have the dogs to have to put up with being covered with ticks. From time to time, they have them. And that when the dogs are covered with ticks, there's several things that we can do. And um, collars and washes and all kinds of other stuff. But shots are generally the best. But good old-fashioned getting that tick and pulling it off. Once you pull that tick off the dog, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to put it back on the ground for it to crawl onto you or to crawl on the, the dog again? Or are you going to kill it? Well, we can say that that tick that I've taken off the dog, maybe this law of karma is not so strong that in fact here in Thailand as a Buddhist culture, you will find DDT for sale. You will find pesticides for sale. You will find ordinary um, veterinarians doing the kinds of things that veterinarians do, which is basically deworming and delousing and, and de-ticking and de uh, fleeing dogs and cats and whatnot like that. And the Buddhist here see absolutely nothing to do with the precepts in getting rid of these pests. That in fact, that's what the word pestilence is all about. And so make the sure that you're knowing the difference between whether you're taking care of a pest or whether you're taking care of an ant or that you're slaughtering an animal that is a is a breathing living creature and so now we're beginning to look at compassion and an example of that is, is for me the and i remember it quite well because this woman was impressed with how i took care of getting the spider out of the house she had a spider in her house and most people would have just to kill the spider well no i coaxed it out and got it on a piece of paper with a cup on it and got got it under the cup, you know, and all of that, and take the spider outdoors, and everything is great. If I had killed that spider, it would have not been joyful remembering, but this woman was actually quite impressed that I was actually able to save that spider's life and get it out of danger. So this is a way to begin to think that there are some cases, but see what happens with people who are looking at it from the perspective of a precept. They think about it in the sense of, well, how far can I take that precept? How far does killing go? And you can take it all the way down. Well, I can't breathe because if I do, I'll kill the, the animals. This is actually where the Jains have gone to. Do you know about the Jains in India? There's not so many of them left anymore, but in the time of the Buddha, they were actually uh, quite active. And uh, the modern Jains, they will wear a face mask. Why do they wear the mace mask? To keep from breathing the animals that could die in their lungs. But they wear the face mask not because of COVID. They're not wearing it to keep themselves clean. They're keeping it in order for them to keep the precepts. Another uh, thing is, is that they always walk barefoot and they always carry a broom around so that they can uh, sweep in front of their path any animals that they might step on. Well, Buddhist monks do exactly the same thing. They just don't carry the broom around, but they do sweep. 
you you in fact i've got good stories about achad tenesero because i was doing walking meditation when i was at his wat and he'd come out after my walking meditation and destroy my walking path all of those footsteps that i'd put in place he'd go and clean them up and the next day i'd go back and i'd do walking meditation and achan uh, Tennessee would come out and sweep the path again and take care of my my meditation wall. <laughs> so we can take these precepts way too far. So let's not look at them as as precepts and let's look at them as how are you going to behave once your mind is noble? When your mind is noble, then you'll be able to take care of the animals quite well. But instead of being noble about it, you're making rules that you're trying to follow, like not killing and not telling a lie and not doing this and not doing that. And then when you break those precepts, you feel bad. Yeah, and it's almost out of control. But you said again in the petish samafada, it's there's a creation in it and there's a, like an intention behind it. But it's almost out of control. It's like paradox thing. Well, it certainly will be out of control if we don't know what's going on. That's why we want to do that investigation and get really sharp at it so that we can really see what's going on. That's the that's the number one step is to really look at what's going on. After that, we can use wisdom to decide and to, to define whether we can do something about it or not. But as so long as we're not looking very closely, we'll either be in doubt, screw up, not look at what we're doing, think we can do something that we can't do, etc. like that. So the first thing is to investigate, to really, really look carefully. This is why the teaching of Patita Samapada is there, and that's why the, the promise of these four jhanas are there, but the four jhanas in Western Buddhism has come become some, some sort of magical symbol of advancement rather than really just the stages of mind where you can really pay attention to what's going on, that you can really look. And so that's what I invite you to do is to pay attention, to really look. And when you get really good, good at looking, I don't care whether you call it first, second, third, fourth, jhana, no jhana at all. The label is not important. What's really important is you're paying attention. You're really looking at what's going on in the mind. So this will, then, I think, increase the level of mindfulness. That's, uh, right, right. And so watching for you being critical of yourself, watching for you to apply these rules. Because, in fact, you're using these precepts as a bludgeon to beat yourself up and be harsh with yourself. Rather than using them as uh, points of uh, training. Happy mistakes. So, Jamarato, question for yeah. you. You're not really drawing too much of a distinction then between what might be called um, like a, a, a samadhi or, or just like concentration practice and insight practice, like the wet versus the dry insight. You see the jhana process as intertwined or interwoven with the process of doing vipassana or doing that 
I would say that's that's not only correct, but congratulations to you also for sussing that out because I really haven't talked about it. And I generally don't because wet and dry is a term that came a thousand years after the Buddha. Right. That that did not exist. Wet and dry was not part of the package. That even the distinction that's drawn between Vipassana and Samatha is not a distinction that's in the suttas. That's from later stuff. And it really has to do with this one thing. And that is, does the mind have hindrances or not? If the mind has no hindrances, then it's going to be dry. And if it is dry and you're a dry insight meditation practitioner, the very first thing that you should do is start splashing some water on this thing, which means come out of those hindrances and and, uh, get the mind correct. That's the dry versus wet. You're not going to get anywhere with dry insight meditation because all you're not really looking at what's going on yet. The reason that you're not going on uh, getting really what's going on is because in a way you don't like what you do see. And because we don't like all of the mistakes that we make, if we don't like all of this stuff, then we're not going to make progress because we're not going to keep looking at it. But when we start liking the fact that we can check ourselves and see that, oh, I just broke that precept, aha, I caught that one, then that means that we're on our guard and we're also having an underlying position of uh, recognizing that we're getting rid of that kind of stuff, that we're becoming free from that. But when we have the, uh, the thought instead of, oh, there it is again, then that has almost the loser's mentality of, ah, over and over, there you are, I see you, you're screwed up, you're no good, that you're not up to scratch, you're breaking the precepts, okay, and that's all critical thinking. Rather than the nurturing thinking of, ah, I can see that I screwed up, yeah, I can learn from that, look at what I'm doing, wakey, wakey. And we do that joyfully. And so that means that now we're beginning to add the juice or the wetness to it is actually then the joy that we have that is associated with the first jhana of being satisfied, content, uh, comfortable, free from, uh, from fear, safe and secure. This is that first jhana then that allows us to use that as a platform for going deeper into the mind because i i find personally for me like if i'm just doing dry insight like body scanning or noting i feel grumpy miserable kind of bored yeah like mm-hmm. in one kind of mode and if i'm doing just what i would consider shamatha i feel kind of like dopey and blissed out and uh, i like i feel I feel very like very positive while I'm doing it, but then when well, I'm not- notice also the dopey. Right. What is the dopey? Look at that. Investigate that too, because it's that dopiness that is actually the cloud that you have because you're not actually seeing things as fast as you could be seeing them. So by paying attention to that dopey over and over and over again, you're actually going to uh, clean that up. 
Get a little faster. Watch what's going on a little bit more clearly and in great detail. Okay, so I, I think that the problem is I've been making a distinction and splitting them up in my mind as opposed to paying attention, getting faster, and the last one that you said, I don't want to lose it. It was... Well, I, I guess paying paying attention. Notice what's going on. Notice what's going on. Paying attention. That's a good example of it. I wasn't noticing what was going on. <laughs> Great. I think what's uh, it's important to to note that the the natural state of the mind is peaceful. It's totally peaceful. It's pure. It's there is no no. It's happy. The mind is. I like, wouldn't believe you if you told me it was supposed to be peaceful. I wouldn't believe you if you told me it was supposed to be peaceful. The first question I'm going to ask is who made that rule? It is peaceful. Right. That's the reality is, is that its natural state is going to be peaceful. And if it is not peaceful, if you're feeling miserable, there it's And if you're doing mindfulness and you're not seeing your mind creating that misery, you're not actually doing mindfulness. You're doing something else. That's true. Absolutely. And when we're critical of ourselves, when we catch ourselves making a mistake and we're critical of that, that means that we're not being mindful the second time. We were mindful to see the mistake, but now we're not mindful to see what we're doing with that mistake. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I want to clarify, like if you're doing a body scan and you're like, OK, I'm noticing an itch, I'm noticing an unpleasant sensation, fear is arising. Um, I, there's a, a tightness in my chest. There's an unpleasant memory that arises and it's like noticing all these details that obviously is not in the realm of doing a shamatha practice, but would be in a realm. It of is with one small change. Right? That is samatha practice with, except that when you're noticing that itch or that unpleasant situation, you're already being critical of it. Mm. Exactly. The change is to stop being critical of it and say, ah, I see that itch. Right. Uh -huh, I see, see that. Look at this. OK, and so we uh, have that uh, childlike or beginner's mind attitude of seeing Enough. everything as fresh Wake rather up. than You're how it's supposed to be. You're creating it. Wake up to that that creation. Wake up that you are creating that. It's not it doesn't arise by itself. You are creating it. You should wake up. Uh, mm -hmm. And say, okay, I'm creating it. I, I can just say, I'm, I'm not going to create it anymore. <laughs> nope. It's empty. It's not anymore. It goes away. Yeah. Excellent. That's what I'm going okay. I think that this is a good time for us to finish off. We've done almost two hours now, and this everybody's feeling really good right now, which is part of the, the joy of doing these talks is people are getting some satisfaction. Oh, now I get it. And we can relax finally. I don't like to end calls when people are feeling dissatisfied. That we get ourselves yeah. into a state of satisfaction. So I'm really glad that you guys are all satisfied and what we've been talking about and whatnot. So thank you both. This has been really good. I've enjoyed. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, our new friend. Yeah. Yeah, good friends. You guys should get in contact with each other through Skype now that you know how. Because we are. We, need, we, are. we all need friends. The more friends, the better. Okay. 
Okay, so uh, I think uh, see you see you next time. All right, uh, you enjoy your birds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, bye bye, guys. Bye.